We've been moving through the book of Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 29, our New Testament complementary passage is Paul's first epistle to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So if you place your bulletin or your bulletin insert as a bookmark in Exodus chapter 29, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in honor of God's word, please stand. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 29 and continuing in the reading of God's word. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his son 
and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat of the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for the atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth sea of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, while I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. 
Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lord, would you speak to us by that word through your Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, brief recap. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. You know the story. He becomes second only to Pharaoh. His father and brothers come down and they find favor in the land. And they settle in the land of Goshen. Over 400 years, the people of Israel become numerous, prosperous. And a new Pharaoh comes on the scene who does not know Joseph. This new Pharaoh looks at this workforce and says, they're my slaves. And they're also breeding like rabbits. And so he comes with the great, uh, comes up with the great idea of having the midwives kill all the sons. He doesn't want a possible rebellion on his hand. In the midst of this persecution, God raises up Moses. And he raises up Moses and trains Moses in his 40 years, not only in Pharaoh's court, but then in another 40 years, serving under his father-in-law in the wilderness, he trains Moses to be the exact instrument that God is going to use to deliver the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Not because they're great people, not because he loves them so much, but because of the love that he has for Abraham. The promise that he made to Abraham. God's been very clear about that. Why are the children of Israel being brought up out of the land of Egypt? Because of God's covenant promise. He promised to Abraham and he's fulfilling that promise. So God brings the people out. You know the plagues, the Nile turns to blood, the sky is darkened and all of that. He brings them out of the land of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And here at Mount Sinai, this place where God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, here at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel make camp. And from Exodus chapter 18, all the way through the end of the book, the entire book of Leviticus, all the way up to Numbers chapter 9, the children of Israel are camped at Mount Sinai. And they receive this covenant. We call it the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant of Sinai. That covenant of Sinai is divided into seven portions. There are seven clear sections that begin in Exodus chapter 18 and continue all the way to Numbers chapter 9. Very clear sections that cover different aspects of the Israelite nation before God. The first is that marriage covenant begins in Exodus chapter 18. This language that God uh, uses is the language of the bridegroom. You saw how I bore you up on eagle's wings and I drew you unto myself. That's lover's language. And in the lover's language, God gives the Ten Commandments. So the first aspect of the Sinaitic Covenant is this marriage contract. Later on... In the Bible, in the minor prophets, when Israel is disobedient to God, do you remember how the prophets frame it? 
How do they, what is it that they accuse Israel of? They accuse Israel of adultery. Think of the book of Hosea. Uh, that, that's just one of the minor prophets. Isaiah does it, Jeremiah does it, Ezekiel does it. Other minor prophets do it as well. They accuse Israel of being unfaithful in her marriage vows. So the question is, if she's committing adultery, when did she get married? And the answer, when did God officially marry Israel, is there in Exodus chapter 20. The marriage covenant that God makes with Israel. He then moves on in the next few chapters to focus on these judicial or social laws. And a section of social laws that deal with how the Israelites are to treat one another, how they're to treat the strangers, specifically how they are to treat the dispossessed. Those who are not wealthy, those who are widows, those who are orphans. God spends a lot of time focusing on how they are to care for the dispossessed. Now we turn, we've turned to worship. How is it that we are to worship? And so we've seen the Ark of the Covenant, we've seen the table of showbread, the lampstand, all of these things, the tabernacle. One of the things that I want you to see in this entire, all these chapters that have been dealing with the tabernacle, is it moves from the single most precious thing, covered in gold, drenched in gold, from the most precious thing, it moves to the more common. And you see that in the progression of the gold to the silver and then later to the bronze. There's a very clear progression as we move from the Holy of Holies outward to the very court of the tabernacle. From what that which is most precious, and that is that mercy seat. That's the only thing in there. That is the only furniture in that glorious place is the mercy seat. And beloved, I'll say it again. I said it when we touched on this chapter, but I'll say it again. You know what the offense of the gospel is? Have you ever, have you ever asked yourself that question? We hear about the offense of the gospel all the time. I mean, come on, how offensive is the gospel? Jesus loves you. <laughs> That's not super offensive, folks. The love of Christ is not the offense of the gospel. The mercy seat is not the offense of the gospel. The fact that you need the mercy seat is the offense of the gospel. The fact that you and I need God's mercy. I'm not good enough. I never will be good enough. And neither are you or will you be. That is what the offense of the gospel is. That you and I need God's mercy. But there from the mercy seat we go on. And we build out the rest of the tabernacle. We noted that the tabernacle itself is a re-creation of the Garden of Eden. Right there in the most intimate portion of the entire tabernacle complex is where God communes with his people. 
where there is a place that is unbroken by sin. All of the rituals that Aaron has gone, has had to go through before he enters the holy place render him before God holy. And in that place of sinlessness, in that place of holiness, is where we can truly commune with God. But that place of holiness, that place of sinlessness, is a place that in the Garden of Eden is guarded by an angel with a flaming sword. You can't get back into the garden. The tabernacle gives you a way back in. There is a court and there is a gate to that court. And right there, as you're walking in the gate of the tabernacle, the very first thing that you're going to see front and center is this altar. This place of death where bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and all manner of animals are getting slaughtered continually. So as we look at this passage briefly this morning, I want to look at it in two ways. The first is I want to look at the blood of bulls and goats. That's the first thing. The second is, I want to look at what this passage tells us about communion with God. Now, as we read through that passage, I hope your ears picked up. I tried to emphasize just a little bit in my reading. I hope your ears picked up when I read a little phrase that appears three different times in our passage. And that is, the stuff that is burned on the altar is a food offering. And that ought to cause you to pause just a moment. Why does God need food? Is this some ancient Middle Eastern religious ritual, yada, yada, yada? No. It's a food offering to God. And so that's going to be the second thing that we'll look at. First, the blood of bulls and goats. And secondly, this communion meal that is central in this passage. So the blood of bulls and goats. You notice that there is, in Aaron's ordination, there's a bull that's supposed to come, cut its throat, all of its blood poured out there on the ground, and you're supposed to do it every day for seven days. Now, because I am an astute scholar, I googled. And Google tells me that the average bull has got about 10 gallons of blood. So 10 gallons, two of those big five-gallon jerry cans, every single day for a week, blood poured all over the ground around the altar. Every single day for a week, Blood sprinkled on Aaron's garments. Every single day for a week, blood on his forehead, blood on his right thumb. I'm sorry, not his forehead, his earlobe. Blood on his earlobe, blood on his right thumb, and blood on his big toe. Aaron was a bloody mess. This was a nasty looking event. This is not pretty. There's a lot of screaming going on here from animals that are having this experience. Not just this blood, beloved. Not just this blood. 
you heard again through the passage, this is perpetual. It is an ordinance for the generations. Around 100 AD, the Jewish historian Flavius wrote, and he was, he was describing Jerusalem, and, and this was after the fall of Jerusalem that Flavius is writing, and he's kind of recounting the glories of Jerusalem and the glories of the temple and, and what the Jewish religion was all about and, and trying to communicate this to, to the Romans particularly. But Flavius says how important the Passover was to, to the Jewish people. And he says, at one Passover alone, one Passover, over 265,000 animals were sacrificed. One Passover, <laughs> 265,000 animals. God required a lot of blood. We can at least take that away from this passage. God required acres of blood. Over the 600 years of Israel's existence, God required millions of gallons of blood. All of that blood that would have been shed over that entire period. And I want you to think, beloved, A... That's how seriously God takes sin. That's how seriously God takes our rebellion against Him. That we cannot be welcomed into His presence without a whole lot of dying. Without a whole lot of death. That bull you saw, Aaron places his hands on the bull, transfers his guilt to that bull, and then that bull becomes the bearer of guilt. And its carcass burned outside the camp. The writer of the Hebrews takes up this very picture when he says that Jesus Christ suffered outside the camp. He became our sin bearer. But beloved, it the, the thing, I, w- I want you to notice two things about this blood and this massive amount of blood. I want you to notice two things about it. The first thing I want you to notice is how very seriously God takes the issue of sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a human failing. It's not a weakness. It's not a momentary lapse of judgment. It's not Whatever words or phrases you want to use to minimize it. God takes sin absolutely seriously. So much so that millions of gallons of animal blood were poured out as a constant reminder that I, deserve to die. But this animal is dying on my behalf. The second thing I want you to take away from this, hopefully a bit more hopeful, (laughs) the second thing 
Just imagine in your mind's eyes, if we gathered all that blood over the hundreds of years that Israel was a nation, that this activity from the tabernacle to the temple was active. All that blood. I'm guessing we could probably fill this entire shopping center a good six or seven feet deep. And all of it is just a mere shadow of the preciousness of one drop of Christ's blood. Do you see that? Do you see all of that blood out there was not enough? The psalmist will say the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They knew from the beginning this wasn't enough. They knew it was only a picture. It was hopeful. It was something. One day, this is going to stop. One day, there's going to be the right blood. One day, there is going to be that sacrifice that says enough. God is satisfied. He's done. And all of those rivers of blood, literally rivers of blood, are nothing more than a pinprick in the grand tapestry of the glory, the majesty, and the power of Christ Jesus' blood. What a glorious Savior. That this entire bloody system is just a shadow of the very perfection of his own. But because of that blood, we are able to enjoy a communion meal. A communion meal that we've seen already in our passage. It's a pleasing food offering to the Lord. Uh, That's there in verse 18. It's again in verse 25. Uh, and then down in verses 38 and following, we have the focus on that communion meal portion of, of this relationship between the priest and God. In verse 31, you see, you shall take the ram of ordination, boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket of the tent of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons are the ones who are eating. It goes on to say, not a stranger. These things are holy. These things are set apart. And so Aaron and his sons are the ones who are supposed to be eating this meal with God. But one of the things in all of the uh, list, I mean, we, we've been, you, you read through an awful lot of details here. But I want you to just draw your attention to what it is that's cooked in the morning and what it is that's cooked in the evening. And that begins in verse 38. This is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. So year old lamb. Uh, one in the morning, the other at twilight. With the first lamb, a tenth sea of fine flour mingled with a fourth hen of beaten oil and a fourth hen of of wine for a drink offering. So what do we got? We got lamb, 
We've got flour, we've got oil, and we've got wine. Beloved, that's the basic ingredients of a really good meal. (laughs) That is a delicious meal. If you've ever had roast lamb, if you haven't, you ought to go get it. Try a shawarma. Uh, a, a shawarma will get you good and close to it. But but roast lamb, roast goat. Uh, here in America, hunters love uh, to, to hunt deer and eat deer meat. Uh, it is when I tasted deer for the first... Because I grew up eating goat. Uh, I grew up in a culture that had goat and lamb and all that. And so... First time I tasted deer meat, I was like, aha, now I understand how Esau could have been, or uh, Jacob, Isaac, and, uh, anyway, Isaac could have confused when his sons were tricking him. Uh, he sent one to hunt a deer, and the other brought a lamb, uh, goat, and he ate it and didn't immediately go, hey, wait, this isn't deer meat, because uh, they both taste very, very similar. Uh, it's easy to mistake goat and deer meat. Uh, they, they taste very similar. At any rate, bottom line is this is good food. This is really good food. A lamb, flour, oil, wine, morning and evening. This is a delicious meal. God himself the, the animals that are being burnt on the offering. And he, he mentions the choices. Now, to me, granted, these are not the choices parts. I am fine with throwing the kidneys on the altar, and I'm fine with throwing the liver on the altar. I hate both of them. My taste preferences are not what's on trial here, though. This was the choice meat. This was the good stuff. This was the most precious part of the harvesting of those animals is the meat, and particularly the fat that is around the kidneys, the fat that is right there around the liver, that is that is the good stuff. And that was what God was pleased. It, it says, our text says it comes up before him as a pleasing aroma. He is pleased to partake of this meal with us. And so in these two things, the blood of bulls and goats, and then this fellowship, this sweet communion, this delicious meal. Do you see them in our text, how they stand side by side? It seems like you would have one or the other, doesn't it? It seems like either God is angry at you, And needs a lot of blood to take care of his anger. Or, God really, really, really loves you and just wants to be in a relationship with you. It seems like it's either one or the other. But here in our text, both of them stand right next to each other. The gallons of blood that must be shed are just a tiny picture of that perfect blood that will one day be shed. But also, beloved, those meals, morning and evening 
over and over and over and over for hundreds and hundreds of years. That delicious meal, morning and evening for hundreds of years, must also have been a small shadow. Do you see that? If the blood is just a small shadow of something glorious, then the meals must be a small shadow of something else. And so what is it? What are those meals, those delicious meals, those meals that say I'm at peace with God, those meals that say I'm sitting at His table enjoying fellowship with Him, delicious fellowship, rich, rewarding fellowship, what is that a small shadow of? Well, beloved, you ought to know. It's the table, isn't it? It's the work of God in your heart and in my heart that He has brought peace. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, He Himself is our peace. He has brought Jew and Gentile together with one another. And together has broken down that wall of separation that separates them from God. He's our peace. And this meal that the priests take up morning and evening is a small picture of the reality that you and I can have right now. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel a lot of communion with God sometimes. Sometimes I have rich seasons of communion. Sometimes there are seasons in which God's Word, I'm I'm, I'm like a sponge. I soak it up. My time with God, my presence with God, my prayer time is just rich and meaningful. But I'll be honest, and I think if you're honest, you will be too. There are times. When either I just feel like I'm ticking the box. I know I should do this. It's on my schedule. I'm going to feel bad if I don't. So I'm going to do it. Or even worse, yeah, I'm just too busy today. This just, I got, I got too much on my plate. There's too much going on. I just had an argument with my wife. I really don't feel like sitting down and praying with her right now. <laughs> if I'm going to pray with my wife right now, it's going to be some imprecatory psalms because she has, has offended me. Uh, there, there, there are times when my walk with Christ is not this reflection of sweet communion and mealtime delicious feasting with Him. But beloved, it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what I feel. Our feelings in this are nice. I mean, sure. Give another analogy. Whether I am in an argument with my wife at the moment, Whether we are in one of those seasons that I guess all married couples have, I know we do, (laughs) seasons where you feel kind of distant as opposed to the honeymoon seasons, whether I'm in one of those seasons or not, what's the core reality? 
She's my wife. I am married to her. That's the core reality. And whether you feel in close communion with God or not, whether you feel wrapped up in His love or not, the reality is that Jesus Christ said, of all that the Father gives to me, I will lose none. In his high priestly prayer, he prays, Father, I pray not for these only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. Keep them. Keep them. They are yours. You gave them to me. Keep them. And beloved, the day that the Father refuses his son's prayer is the day all the universe shatters into a trillion tiny pieces and goes away. Because God's Son, whom He is well pleased with, His beloved Son, His only begotten Son, prays for you. He prays for me. That sweet communion, is yours. Whether you feel it or not, it is yours. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you recognize all that we've been saying all the way through the entire service, that you are a sinner in need of grace, or you are a sinner saved by grace. That's the only two categories there are. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no male. There is no female. You are only a sinner saved by grace or a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. And if you're in that second category, then I plead with you to come and speak with me. Speak with any of our ruling elders. Speak with anybody in this congregation. You don't have to pick out an officer. If there's somebody in this congregation, a member of this congregation, who you walk up to and you say, I don't get this. I don't understand this. And they look at you and go, yeah, me neither. I have no idea what he was talking about. Please come up and let me know. Because I want to have a conversation with that person first. Then I'll have a conversation with you. (laughs) But I want to have a conversation with that person first. (laughs) Beloved, the gospel, the gospel is that all of that blood is done. Christ reached his throat up and his head to the heavens and in agony, but victory cried, it is done. It is finished. And it is finished is not his life breath. It is finished is everything that began right here in Exodus chapter 29 and continued all the way through until that moment. It is finished. His blood is enough. And because it is finished, then you and I can enjoy that communion. We can enjoy that fellowship. You can know that you are at peace with God.